Hello and welcome to OperaCast, your one-stop shop for all the latest opera news, reviews, interviews and general chit-chat. My name is David Ward and coming up this month, no misgivings for Miss Skimmin, first responders at ENO, and when was the last time that you wore your monocle to the opera? All this and an exclusive interview with the fantastic countertenor Justin Kim. I'm joined here in the Chapel FM studio by the conductor Helen Harrison, making her pod return. Hello, Helen. Good morning. It's lovely to be back. What are you two operatically speaking at the moment? Uh, at the moment, it's Mozart mashup with uh, Preston Opera, which is a little bit different. Yeah. I saw the other day on Opera Vision, which I'm going to talk about later, and I know I talk about it all the time, but there's a, a performance on there at the moment that you can watch from Hungarian State Opera, where they've taken kind of Mozart's two unfinished operas and sort of shoved them together. Oh, that's um, quite cool. It looks fantastic. Yeah. yeah, well, this mashup is quite interesting because basically, well, it's kind of we've taken all the best bits of all my favourite operas and then shoehorned it into one production uh, with some text that will vaguely try and make sure that the audience has a f- kind of an idea. There's a little bit of the Mozart Requiem in there because it's D minor and works with Don Giovanni, but um, it's going to be quite a lot of fun. And it's a way, actually, for Preston Opera to do some Mozart because obviously there's not huge amounts of chorus. So I've done some cunning rewriting of some finales as well. So, yeah, it's fun. But it's nice to do some Mozart. It was all uh, Verdi, I think, last time I was here. So I feel very pure and clean. Yes, lighten lighten things up a bit. Yeah. Uh, And we're also joined here in the studio making his his main pod debut. It's Chris Pelley. Hello, Chris. Hello. How are you doing? I'm uh, I'm all right this morning. I'm a little bit uh, full of cold, so I apologise if I sound a bit nasal on the recording. (laughs) You're doing a sort of smooth radio voice today, yeah, sort of yeah. down two octaves from the usual. That's it, yeah. I went and huffed some cold germs so that I could <laughs> get the podcast voice going. Excellent. Let us crack on. The the kind of big news, I suppose, from the last few weeks has been that English National Opera have announced their new artistic director. We had Stuart Murphy, their CEO, on the last pod uh, when they were still uh, kind of uh, yet to make the announcement. He said they were looking inside and outside of opera for the right person who'd have the right kind of creative energy and ideas to take the company forward. Um, in the end, they've appointed an opera insider, uh, Annalise Miskimmen, the current artistic director of Norwegian Opera and Ballet. I mean, this is an appointment that has gone down very well. Uh, as we said last month, a lot of kind of uh, critics and whatnot have not had a lot of nice things to say about, about Stuart Murphy, but this is one where everyone seems to be in agreement that this is a great appointment for the company. Well, I think... Um... Thinking back to your podcast with the interview with Stuart, what was really interesting is he was talking about someone who would be kind of more in tune with, you know, your flea bags and all the latest sort of things that are going down. And I think one of the interesting things about Annalise, obviously she's totally 100% opera, a fantastic CV, really knows all the stuff clearly, but also she cites some of her sort of influences of GNS, Mary Poppins, and Star Wars. Right, so, Sesame Street, I saw her as well. Oh, did you? Yeah. Right, that is that Big Bird. A puppet, yeah, yeah. A, a puppet, <laughs> yeah, you know, Don Giovanni or something. Yeah, yeah. So um, she's. I think that is poss- possibly it's. He's still managed to get in the mix someone who's probably uh, more connected with more contemporary culture, shall we say. Um, and also I think it's quite interesting because of her background and the work she's done in terms of bringing communities in. Um, one of the things that she's talked about a lot is the reason she's into opera is her dad sang in op- amateur opera, Mozart, Magic Flute, and that was the thing that did it. But for her as an individual, um, she kind of talks about the fact that opera was an emotional and an intellectual release in Northern Ireland through the Troubles. So it's great that opera for her... You know, it's, it, 
if you cut her, she's going to bleed opera, but she's still sort of connected rather than ivory tower. So I think, you know, great news. Yeah, I mean, she, she, as you say, she clearly has the CV to, to do well. I say it's gone down well. I mean, what, what do you think, Chris, about this idea of, you know, having someone from outside? I mean, you know, Annalise is, 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 is a opera through and through, as you said. But what do you think about this idea of someone who doesn't know anything about opera potentially kind of, you know, heading up a company like this? For you, is that is that something that could work, if not now, then in the future? Well, it's um, obviously you have the, you know, you, you have a musical director in an opera company. So, you know, has Martin Brabins. So in a sense, you, you you might argue that the kind of the insider knowledge can come from that person. Um, but it does see um, it seems difficult for somebody to come in as a total outsider um, and, and run a company. These sort of big CEO jobs kind of people do seem to make very strange sideways steps. Well, you certainly have people. I think one of the things that Stuart said last month was, you know, kind of... Um... Big CEO jobs tend to move across industries quite mm. a lot. Artistically, you, you don't tend to get someone who knows a lot about opera then kind of taking a job at, I don't know, at a ballet company and then going off and, you know, yeah. heading off something else. And it's an interesting point, though, because I, I do sometimes reflect that part of the reason sometimes things work is the cross-fertilisation of ideas. And again, we're always talking about this, particularly on this podcast, you know, how do you get opera out there? And um, clearly, if we're not getting out there, we need to look at doing things differently. And I think if you're looking at those jobs which change in terms of, I think, um, in a corporate world where people are moving, to a certain degree it is a lot more simple because you're dealing with, like, one product, you might be trying to sell it. It's a lot more common. I think the the issue in the arts is there's a, a lot more specific training. But that said, you've still got some blocks of a lot of the things you're doing actually do boil down to managing people, being able to build a great team around you. But having the right person type to to obviously listen to those around you who know actually what they're doing. I mean, I think yeah. what's, what's positive here is that obviously with Daniel Kramer, the last artistic director, not only was he someone that didn't have a lot of opera knowledge, he was someone that hadn't taken on this kind of role before. Mm. You know, you know, a while yeah. ago when we spoke to Sean Edwards, you know, fantastic conductor, but when she was musical director of English National Opera, she just said that more sort of admin side of things was just not was and, not for her. So at least with yeah. someone like Annalise, who's been, mm. you know at Norwegian Opera for quite a long time now. You know, she understands that side of the role as well as being Yeah, exactly. It's the, it's the strategic side, but it's also managing managing the teams, all the contracts, all the kind of running a business side of it, which is, you know, it's there's so much organisation that has to happen to make the art happen. What I'm often aware of, we're very... Um, I've got also a background in sort of corporate world from a previous life. It's very easy to think that, music and opera and all of it happens through this lovely creative um, wave of magic wand and it all happens but actually I always say this you know there won't be any great art unless you've got really good infrastructure underneath it to make it happen so um, it's always interesting but I'm probably a little bit weird because of my background. Well, it's, it's very important and, you know, as we reveal that in our um, last pod of the year, we've got an interview with Sarah Hopper, the Managing Director of Glyndebourne, where we do very much talk about, mm. um, some may say the boring things, the infrastructure of a company and whatnot, but if you yeah. don't have that, it, it ain't going to happen exactly. on the stage. And I think, you know, what we got from Stuart Murphy last month was that his job is about building a really strong, you know, kind of financial one infrastructure to hopefully mm. allow someone like Annalise to come in and, and have a lovely time on the artistic front. Yeah. Um, so so we shall see. I mean, all the best. I mean, hopefully we'll have her on a, on a, a future pod. Sticking with English National Opera last month. We also spoke about their new ENO response program. Uh, you may remember this is their new scheme, welcoming ten new reviewers into the Coliseum to give their takes on the operas being presented. Um, and this was also the scheme that removed 
the plus one tickets of the established critics, um, much to their disappointment. Um, the first reviews from this cohort are now in. Um, Chris, do you think that this ENO response program uh, gives us anything new? Um, I think it certainly has the potential to do that. Um, I think it's really great to um, kind of give an opportunity to people that want to want to write about opera, and it's it's good for it's good for the company. You know, it attracts a little bit of attention for them. You know, it'll um, kind of I should think it'll spread the word, you know, about their productions a little bit wider than you know if they just didn't do it. Um, I had a look at. I had a look at some of the um, reviews of um, the Gluck that have been written, and, and there's some really interesting things being written there. One thing that always frustrates me about opera reviews is they, you know, you'll, a lot of critics, a lot of people will write very detailed reviews about all aspects of the production, but they'll say very little about the music. I, I knew you were going to say that. Is this because we've well, both this conducted? Is, this is the conductor podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I know. What's worse than having two conductors in the room? Having three. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, okay. I, it is very true. I, 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 I completely that, agree with yeah. you that mm. often it's very, it's very aesthetic or a lot of the time mm. it's about I don't like the plot or yeah. it's about with, yeah. if it's Rupert Christensen, I don't like the toilets, I don't like <laughs> the ice creams, you know, but I, I think you're quite right, Chris, that often the music, mm. funnily enough, can be overlooked. Yeah, in, in a, you know, um, it reminds me of um, what happened to Tara Arort mm. when she was in Rosencavalier at, at Glyndebourne, the horrible reviews that were written about her and, you know, entirely focused on her physical appearance and then just tagged on at the end. The, all the reviewers said, oh, and by the way, she sang beautifully. And some mm -hmm. of the response to that, you know, um, I think I remember Sarah Connolly saying, opera is only about the human voice and nothing else matters. I think that's a little bit extreme because if that were the case, you know, we wouldn't pay millions of pounds for sets and theatres and lighting. Obviously, those things do matter, but, you know... Primarily, it is. Yeah, the balance does often seem to be nobody talks about the music. Yeah. Um, but I guess, to a certain degree, people maybe who were reviewing it sometimes, or the music is a, the score is set, mm. and you're you're limited or not limited, but to a certain degree, you're reproducing that score. And I know as conductors, we all have so much power to influence how that score sounds. Blah de blah. However, it's a lot more fixed compared to the freedom, say that. The, you know the directors and the set designers can have so maybe that's why it tends to get the focus mm. <laughs> yeah and just to kind of you know ignite your passions as conductors is it not the case that if you just get a good singer singing a score we all know pretty well it's always going to be pretty good isn't it uh, well yeah i mean uh, so let's what, look at what, it what is there to say you know uh, yeah uh, that's, uh, <laughs> but I, I do kind of know and also in another way i think um everyone has different will like a production in terms of musicality. Everyone has a personal preference, but to a certain degree, a lot of these productions, the professionally, the orchestras are doing an amazing job. Most of the time, everything will be very an amazing standard. Mm, so, it... so you're right. You know, it's it's a less subjective thing because everything's there. And you're right. If you're doing it well, it it will sound amazing because the ingredients are already already there. Yeah, again, not quite the same. But it reminds me again of when we spoke to 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 Sean Edwards, and she was saying that you know when she has concerts with her London orchestra or whatnot, you know she might have you know, an hour with them in the afternoon and the concerts in the evening. Essentially, you're just trying to find a way to, to reproduce what you've done done before and maybe add in the occasional slightly different tempo. But, you know, that I know having six weeks of opera rehearsals is a bit, is a bit, bit different. Yeah. But mm. Mm. yeah, I just I just sort of 
I brought that up because the reviews that I read, they had very interesting things to mm. say about about the production and and um, actually quite interestingly, um, quite contrasting opinions, um, which I suppose you know is um, um, there's no reason not to expect that. Quite insightful as well about the kind of historical context and and you know theatrical mm. context of of the work. Um, but yeah, I I just thought I I just wonder I don't know writers who if they're not necessarily musicians or don't have a musical background, whether they they might not write as much about the music, you know, compared to more experienced. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 I mean that's that's one of the things that people say about having the what should we call them the experienced established critics. Yeah, that, you know that there, that there is something for. Um, experience and knowledge in this game which is actually being able to yeah. just to kind of talk about those things with mm. some sort of agreed yeah uh, you know kind of uh, competence and expertise i mean you know i always said it a lot of times before so i'm not going to go into it you know widening who talks about opera is is very very important mm. i think for me i uh i'm not i'm not sure about these these early reviews maybe i thought the scheme was going to do something different i thought it was maybe going to be slightly more people that you know absolutely know nothing about opera um where they were still pretty erudite, I would they say. They still pretty, yeah. pretty erudite. And, you know, I, I know one of the people on the scheme and he certainly knows quite a lot about, about opera. Right. So it's definitely not people that have absolutely yeah. no idea, you know. Um, so I'm not I'm not sure whether it did quite what I was expecting. Right. But, you know, here's 10 people that you don't get to... And I, I know, think the other thing, if you look at, you know, the media, obviously uh, putting time and even feedback, because I think the writers are getting some assistance and feedback and they're getting a platform, building profile, all of that. Let's be honest. It's probably not something that the 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 press um, are particularly interested in putting any time or effort into. So you know, if if we don't do it, if the upper world doesn't do it, who's going to develop the next generation of critics? So maybe these people will go on to be those established, or maybe they won't. But I think I think you're right. Actually, when I read them, I was wondering if there'd be something a little bit more left field because it what you know. And I'm not. I'm not sure whether that's a good or a bad thing. Yeah, but just what we were perhaps yeah. expecting. Um, but you know, they will be coming up all all season. And um, it's fair to say that the uh, established reviewers have not looked kindly upon the the opening uh, few productions of English National Opera's uh, new season. I must say, I haven't seen any of them, so I will no, not, I I will not comment. be commenting on no. on that. Going away from English National Opera, the uh, Plaza Domingo saga continues again last month we spoke about this kind of willy won't he appear at the metropolitan opera um in the end just a few days before curtain up he did withdraw from the metropolitan opera's new season he said he'll never perform in new york again um he's also left his position as general director of los angeles opera and um, but he's still due to appear at the royal opera house Covent garden next year and indeed has a very busy european schedule uh, over the past month, we've also had the news, uh, not not quite the same, obviously, as the, the Domingo case, um, that uh, the tenor Vittorio Grigolo has been accused of groping a Royal Opera House chorus member on stage during the Royal Opera's recent tour of Japan. Um, he was immediately suspended by the Royal Opera House and, indeed, by the Metropolitan Opera, where he was due to appear. Um, again, we've, we've spoken about the Domingo case uh, a fair bit over the past few months, so I don't want to kind of go over old ground, but I think what is really interesting for me and something we haven't really discussed is the response to this within the world of opera, particularly from fellow artists. You know, a lot of big stars have come out in support of, of Domingo. Yeah. You know, people like Anna Trebko, 
um, Egil Lachmanchina. Um, and, and recently, I just read something briefly from an interview that, that Bryn Terfel did with The Telegraph. He said, you know, what a great artist Domingo was. He said, you know, he walks into a room and heads turn. What you do with that is up to you. The choice you have to make is what position do you put yourself in? I'm not talking about Placido, I'm talking about other people around him. Do you make a conscious decision to be closer to him or to maybe try your luck getting a role here or there? That's up to you. You put yourself in that position. It struck me that when we had things like the Kevin Spacey allegations, people weren't jumping to his kind of, you know, kind of defence. No. But in opera, it's been the response has been very, very different. And we can debate whether we should, you know, dig up the past or look to change things for the future. But there's quite clearly been a big wanting to gather around and, and, and protect him. I mean, what... What do you kind of make of that response, Helen, which has seemed really odd to me? It's a really difficult one. Um, I'm going to preface everything I say with all of this is such a difficult area. And I was thinking, he's going to ask me to answer the question first. I can see it in his eyes. Well, um, you did the first kind of point, then we had Chris. And then yeah, so it's this. my turn. It's just... I think maybe there's a few things going on here. Maybe there's an element of, of culture here. Um, and I think one of um, one of the issues I think we have in the creative arts in general is is a very intimate way of working compared to the corporate environment. So uh, the corporate environment, it's a lot easier in offices, people working in day, not what I just thought, normal jobs. It's easier to have transparency and processes in place that make it black, more black and white if there's any inappropriate issues. Um, because of the nature of, of music, the arts or that our area I think you get a lot closer to people so those boundaries are there which I think I guess what Bryn is getting at is he's probably saying he's seen different situations in his career and is conscious of maybe what how he's behaved in order to be true to himself it's a really difficult question to answer and I'm just hedging horribly aren't I I, I hadn't heard that that um, those comments from Brent Terfel, um, and I, I I don't know I find them I I just found that quite uncomfortable to listen to actually because it it sounds as if he's well it just really sounds like victim blaming to me you know you have to think about what position you want to put yourself in whether you want to get close to somebody he said that that shouldn't matter when you're talking about harassment or abuse. That shouldn't come into it. So I, I don't really understand what he's saying, what his point is. Um, yeah, I, I find that a little bit strange. Yeah, I, I just think it's been, it's been very interesting how either, either people have seen these allegations as, as, as without merit, which is, which is one mm. thing, or the other is to kind of accept these things and, and, and still kind of want to you know, kind of uh, gather around and promote as well. And and I think the big thing that's come out of this, and again, I this is a bit of a um, a, a bugbear of mine in, in the opera world, is that people keep returning. You know, he's a he's a he's a fantastic artist. He has a he has this charisma. He has this kind of way that people you know, and he's just such an astonishing artist. And there's something about being an artist, and we've said about it before with the the different reactions from the US and mm. Europe that the that the position of the artist as a as a person is it seems to be much more um, kind of uh, cocooned or protected here in Europe you know we've mentioned people like Roman Polanski like mm. Woody Allen you know the very, yeah. and, and again we, we have it now with 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 Plasto that their status as great artists seems to in people's minds put them apart from <laughs> from the rest of which bottom of the line we are we are all human beings so it, yeah it doesn't really stack up does it 
doesn't matter what your power position is, you, you still got a well. We're getting very moral here. You, it doesn't give you the excuse to behave badly, mm. or, or it doesn't give you to the the excuse to behave badly and inappropriately, and then be immune from the consequences of that. Yeah. I would say is the mm. best way to put it. And yeah, you're right. It it doesn't compute, does it? Well, it's, 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 I know, again, we've said it before, you know, you go back to the past, you look, you look at Wagner, you know, Chris and I, we're, you know, big Ring ring fans. Oh. Wagner had very questionable <laughs> views on certain things, but does that mean that we can't enjoy the art? You know, Wagner's long dead, so we don't have to, do, have to deal with him as, as a person. Well, I think that's, that's it, though, isn't it? He's long dead. I think if Wagner mm. was alive today, I probably wouldn't go to any, uh, you know... Exactly, he would, he would be held to account for his views mm. in the here and now yeah but actually that makes it difficult because in another way that music i'm a massive ring this could this could be a long <laughs> podcast yeah. um it does yeah it's difficult because it's not changed the music yeah it is just that we're lucky that we can he's dead and he's gone yeah that but it gives us that there's, there's also the you know again we we don't know we don't know the truth of these allegations against Placido Domingo, but if if we if we are to, you know if we if we sort of give credence to the accusations, then by continuing to employ him, opera companies are putting other people at risk at of the risk. same treatment. That's, yeah. Um, and so obviously he you know he is you know innocent until proven guilty, and he refutes the claims. Mm. Um, but there's you know there is. You know, there there is an investigation ongoing, isn't there? And yeah, we need to see what that says. And and I think companies need to be cautious until that is resolved. And I think that's right. Does does this whole thing just speak to how operas and industry is kind of out of touch with where modern culture is going? It seems really surprising to me, for example, that he's still due to you know due to play the role, perhaps. Yeah, I was I was thinking when you were sort of drawing parallels with. Um, you know, the similar kind of um, um, happenings in, in Hollywood. And I sort of thought Hollywood is is a very different industry and it's kind of, people might say it's more woke than the mm. opera industry, um, which is not a, a word I would normally use, but it kind of, yeah. you know what I mean. Um, and yes, I wonder if, I wonder if there is an element of, opera being too stuck in its ways or too traditional and there still being a kind of element of um like you say he's in a powerful position yeah there's that almost old-fashioned hierarchy that in other parts of society has long since disappeared that to a certain degree people would be very aware that in a position of power if they abuse that that they're open to to almost greater censure now which I think is right because they're in a position where they've abused that, mm. um, and yeah, maybe you're right. We're still not there, but yeah, it's it's just so dis- it's so you know s- sad for everybody yeah, it involved. Is really sad, and yeah. it's you know for the for whatever's gone down, something's happened. Yeah, it's it's a really difficult one to talk about. And then the irony really is the Royal Opera House with the the chap in Japan. Um, immediately he he's he's not working for them, and yet there's there's a, a similar situation where Domingo's still on the slate. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that this is 
Mm. For this is this is quite different. There's a lot mm. of people, including I believe the audience that saw <laughs> that saw yeah. this particular thing yeah. with, with Vittorio Grigolo. Uh, yeah, that's just happen, uh, yeah. which is which is quite extraordinary. Um, yeah, as I said, you know, before it's not it's not the same as as no, as, as, no. as Domingo, but it, it potentially potentially speaks to to something within opera although i think i think uh, but then interestingly victoria seems to be quite an, a, a character unto yeah himself, but he he's <laughs> still um, despite the fact that his as you're saying it's it's a much more clear cut because it's um being witnessed basically he's still um his employment is still continuing yes, yeah. at the scarlet mm. he's still down yeah. to be performing um and again, that brings you exactly back to where we started with Europe just seems to have a different mm. mindset. Yes. One thing I, one, one thing I couldn't, I haven't sort of read, has, has he apologised for that? Or, you know, because I was wondering what is the appropriate kind of response to something like that? It's a, it's a you know, really awful kind of transgression for him to have done. So good, I've not seen anything. Um, you know, I, I, I sort you of wondered wonder, what had happened, yeah. Yeah, what, if... If he were to apologise and to clearly be kind of remorseful about it, would we be okay with him then continuing to work in the industry? I don't know. I I, I just yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, yeah. I, I certainly haven't haven't seen. I've not seen anything. Anything. I think he's probably been told to keep quiet. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's yeah. probably right. if it's an investigation, it's probably all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm. This is a story that will run and run, and we will continue to cover it here on. OperaCast. Before we go on, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to OperaCast wherever you get your podcasts. And please do spend just 30 seconds to leave us a review as it really does help us to find new listeners. Uh, do also keep your questions and comments coming in, info at operacast.co.uk. Uh, we've had some really lovely messages come in recently, um, including some really interesting thoughts on the current uh, diversity conversation that we've we've covered uh, before, and this is definitely a topic that we're going to return to, um, in, including other topics over the coming months. Uh, so do keep writing and sending in your thoughts. Uh, a few little things to uh, round up: the UK theatre nominations have recently been announced. These celebrate theatre across the UK, especially in the regions. Uh, so there are nominations for Buxton International Festival uh, for the world premiere of Georgina. Um, Opera North for their new production of Tosca and Welsh National Opera for War and Peace. Um, now, I saw, saw both Tosca and War and Peace, uh, very, very strong productions. I didn't see Buxton, I don't know if you No, I, I didn't. All I can say is that I did bump into the audiences as they came out and they really enjoyed it. But I didn't actually see it. But I did also see Tosca, Opera North, and uh, I thought um, it, I, I'm, I can still think about bits of it that made me... My spine tingle. It's still kind of with me, which always says there's something amazing about production, in my my opinion. So congratulations to those three. The uh, winners are announced this Sunday, 27th of October. We've had some cast announcements for next year's summer seasons. Opera Holland Park have announced their casts, um, including uh, Anush Hovhannisyan and Amanda Rucroft and Eugene Onyegin. That looks uh, pretty exciting. Uh, Grange Park have also announced their casts for their 2020 season, which includes Joseph Kaleha in La Gioconda and Ailish Tynan in Labo when making her role debut as Mimi. Um, uh, Ailish is a fantastic singer. Many of you will know her for her commentaries on uh, BBC Cardiff Sing of the World and other BBC broadcasts. Um, so really... Uh, excited to see her um, 
uh, have that role debut next year at Grange Park. Uh, we've also had the news again following up on uh, a regular talking point here on OperaCast uh, that the Royal Shakespeare Company have uh, dropped BP as a sponsor. Um, we've spoken about this before, BP um, sponsoring the Royal Opera House's big screens. A lot of protests from Extinction Rebellion this summer around those, but uh, the Royal Opera House continue uh, to have BP as a sponsor, um, but there's been the first major cultural casualty with the Royal Shakespeare Company parting ways. Um, now, Chris, obviously we've had huge Extinction Rebellion protests over the summer, millions of people getting involved. I mean, do you think it's sustainable for people like the Royal Opera House and, and other companies to kind of keep these kind of oil uh, companies, big polluters still as kind of sponsors attached to the arts? Yeah, I think there's definitely a, a kind of public pressure which is coming to bear on kind of on the general subject of environmentalism, which I think is you know, long overdue. I would say that the only way a kind of a continued kind of relationship with a company like BP would be um, viable would would be for would be for BP to uh, taking action, really serious action on climate change and um, addressing the the kind of the concerns of groups like Extinction Rebellion. Helen, if, if BP gave you a million pounds for your new production of whatever you fancy doing, <laughs> would you be for that? Oh, so he's very good at these awkward questions, isn't he? Um, I think what you d need to look at is essentially Extinction Rebellion are trying to change the way that the world works and it needs to change. So... Um, to, to basically what they need to do is that would need to be tied to some active change wouldn't it to try and make it legitimate to take their money it is all very difficult because I, I know the, the earth is plummeting to its doom very quickly um anyone oh, it's here, I know right? well we are in Yorkshire um <laughs> so um but I, I still I still worry because um, we need maybe other companies who are making the money in a, a moral way to come forward and be uh, give some money to the arts because the thing is the amount of money that BP gives will be important. So I'm sure the, the Royal Shakespeare have, have morally done the right thing but I, I can imagine there's a lot of scurrying around because that will be a massive hole in their income. So... It's a really difficult one. How do we how do we get the sponsors to come forward who don't have moral problems? Mm. It's a very strange kind of world we're coming into where or well, we're already there really, aren't we? These companies are the you know, much bigger than national governments. Companies like, like Shell and BP and, you know, other companies, not just oil companies, but all the kind of big multinational corporations and they exist solely for the purpose of making money for their shareholders that's why any company exists you know that's yeah that's how our kind of that's you know, capitalism that, exactly that's capitalism <laughs> hooray um and so in a way you, you can't really blame a company for acting amorally because a company isn't a moral organization it, you know, it has one purpose and it will serve that purpose to the best of its ability. But but this is where the interesting thing about uh, corporate social responsibility comes in because, um, you know, a, quite an important indicator for a lot of the FTSE companies is a corporate social responsibility report as part of their annual accounts that goes to the shareholders. And I think 
to a certain degree, to, for many years, that's been kind of a box-ticking exercise, mm. which it's been easy for the companies to go, oh, yeah, lovely, we're doing all this great work. What's interesting is actually the the likes of Extinction Rebellion are making the corporate social responsibility a live part of the work. So it will put pressure on them, I think, mm. because more and more people will be questioning the validity of the, t- the box-ticking yeah. exercise. Mm. And you're totally right, companies don't exist um, to be a moral or amoral. That wasn't... Uh, that uh, yeah, wasn't no, you, a, I wasn't defending uh, no, I, I know, that you, system. I just kind yeah. of... That the nature of the state. business. However, yeah. if you're looking at running running a business long term, um, if you're looking at BP, given what's going to happen with the oil reserve, we're getting totally off opera here. But we'll yeah, keep yeah. going. They will probably be looking at their business model and realizing that there is in 50 years' time a, a massive t- long term issue because a lot of the oil is going to run out. Yes, yeah. So actually, a lot of the maths, if they're doing the company strategy right, they should be looking at a lot of the alternatives and working out how they can be the leaders in that area. Mm. But it, but obviously, Helen's pitch to be the new chief executive. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. There you go. But to bring it back to opera, opera. <laughs> yes. yeah, cunning. I, I wonder, <laughs> how, do, you know, does it do any good? Does it do any good for the Royal Shakespeare Company to? turn away funding if, well, if BP were to offer you a million pounds for, for whatever Well, David I just think what I could do it, with a million would pounds. Would it do any good for you to turn that down? Because essentially, well, that's just money that isn't now going back to the shareholders rather than mm. into what okay. we would say is a good cause. Yeah. Um, does it actually harm the Royal Shakespeare Company more than it harms BP? Would it harm the Royal Opera House more than it would harm BP? Well, it, it, I think it does. Ironically, but it, mm. this is it's a but maybe this, it's necessary, mm. yeah, yeah, precisely. I mean, the, uh, the the whole point of turning the money down is is the the rep, either reputational damage if mm. you're being hard headed about it, yeah. or it's if you believe you have some sort of moral responsibilities. A nice sort of lefty liberal arts organisation not to kind of take this this sort of money. I mean, I've said it before. You know, I'd love arts organisations. You know, some of them to be run by you know kind of really kind of right-wing hard-headed people or productions to be created by, you know, sort of, you know, like a big group of right-wing directors just to kind of get a bit of a different, you know, um, side of things. You know, we do sort of get... We're in a very lovely lefty liberal bubble, aren't we? <laughs> it's a, exactly. It's you a know, good point. And we wonder yeah. why it's kind of a lefty liberal audience. And it's because it kind of speaks to half the population. Yeah. We could start to come out progressive values, but we haven't got time. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting, you know. It's, 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 it's the bubble that we're that we're in. Um, we could bring it back to Wagner. <laughs> I, I knew it, that was quite. Well, exactly, you know, I know it's, it's a fact, isn't it, that the Wagner audience is more, or is more more right leaning than the okay. average opera audience. Mm. It's a it's a really kind of interesting. Well. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. That, tricky. That sounds like a special episode. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you can get us both back. For that. Yeah, absolutely. and, and, and uh, to let you know, listeners, that from uh, January 2020, we will be moving up, excitingly, to two episodes per month. One, our regular programming of the latest news from the opera world, and one, uh, a special podcast on a, a particular uh, theme every month. So, uh, so do make sure to be subscribing by the time we get into the new year for that. Now, uh, last month, I had the supreme pleasure of talking to the counter-senator Justin Kim, uh, ahead of his uh, debut at the Theatre Andervin in Vienna. Uh, we spoke about his career, the peculiarities of being a counter-tenor, uh, and, of course, we discussed Kim Chi Bartoli. 
So, Justin, thank you very much for uh, coming on to, to OperaCast this month. Thank you for having me. Just tell us where you are at the moment. What is it you're, you're working on currently? Um, I'm currently in Vienna, Austria, working on Mozart's La Clemenza di Tito. Uh, this is the third Mozart opera that I'm doing in a row this year, in 2019, after Idomeneo and Le Nozze di Figaro. Don't feel as though you're getting pigeonholed, though. It's, um, it's been an enjoyable Mozart series. Oh, I, I love singing Mozart. Um, I think, you know, when you first encounter classical music, a lot of us can say, oh, yeah, Mozart's um, Twinkle Twinkle or something was my first exposure to classical music. And um, it was for me, too. And um, also having played violin, I played Mozart violin concertos, um, as some of my first concertos. So, yeah, there's like a very deep um, connection with uh, Mozart and my musical soul, I guess. <laughs> Do you ever get kind of frustrated by that kind of rel relative kind of narrowness of the, the countertenor repertoire? Um, you know, I suppose it's kind of fairly kind of few roles out there. And I suppose as well as as opposed to, you know, kind of a, a more traditional soprano or tenor voice, that the countertenor voice kind of almost kind of tends to kind of stay the same even as you age. So you always kind of um, kind of limited to a certain number of roles. Do you ever find that a bit fit, kind of bit frustrating? Um, I personally don't find that frustrating at all. I think it's um, an interesting challenge, um, more so because the each time you can uh, you revisit the same character, um, you have a better knowledge of the character and you can take your personal life experience or uh, whatever you learn from stagecraft and um, what you've learned during your career, you can apply that and create a brand new character. And each time um, it's not just about the music and uh, the perhaps the notes that are written on the page and the text stay the same, but productions are always different, more or less. Um, the people with whom you're working are different. So um, there's so much to do, even with the limited number of uh, countertenor roles. I, I say limited in comparison to, like you said, the mo more modal voices. But I, I don't see that as a limitation. I suppose there's a, there's a kind of a good period of history where the countertenor or kind of the cast, kind of castrati went very much out of, of fashion. I mean, have you ever kind of tried mm -hmm. to find ways to dabble in, you know, that kind of 19th century rep or whatnot? Is there some stuff out there that we're just not familiar with or are you, you kind of stuck to um earlier and, and kind of more modern stuff well i actually started my career doing operettas so more romantic period music offenbach and um uh deflated mouse uh so uh strauss the second and i'll be doing more operetta in a few seasons and also, not many countertenors sing Mozart. Mozart is considered pretty late for countertenor mm. voices, but I do those. And in Baroque, I start with Monteverdi, and um, I do everything <laughs> in Baroque period. So I, I don't necessarily feel like there's a big gap. Um, I Maybe perhaps like Wagner and Strauss that I don't sing. <laughs> But also in song repertoire, I sing those composers as well. <laughs> so perhaps on operatic stage, I don't do those composers, but it's not that um, I don't sing them at all. And I, I feel like I'm very much of an omnivore <laughs> when it comes to composers.
I like all of them. I like a big buffet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so even if you're not singing them, you can still enjoy them, can't you? you know, of course you can. Yes. But, Zalome being one of my favorite operas to watch. It's just so... Uh, ah, I, I love this <laughs> opera so much. <laughs> something about the uh, the kind of the drama about it. Something almost slightly camp about it, dare I say. I think, you know, people could probably say that about a lot of those kind of high romantic stuff you know that it's very heart on its sleeve sort of stuff isn't it yeah but at the same time there um i don't know you can turn on your television and you can watch sitcom or uh, or you can watch a soap opera or uh, there are many many things that you can watch and um i feel like late romantic period perhaps is like one sort of taste, but it doesn't mean that, oh, like I never watch soap, opera, soap operas, I only watch sitcoms and like people wouldn't really do that. Mm-hmm. So if you consider yourself a fan of television, you would consume everything. <laughs> and um, yeah, opera fans, if you're a true opera fan, I think you would like everything and everything in between everything. <laughs> So I suppose a lot of people will first have, have come across you this, this summer. You were at the, the Royal Opera House um, as, as Carabino in, in Debbie McVicker's Marriage of Figaro. Um, I mean, how was your experience at Covent Garden? And did you kind of feel a sense of responsibility, not only it being your kind of house debut, but also debuting the first male Carabino at the Opera House? Well, of course, I had that kind of sense of responsibility, also pressure, but I would say I feel the same kind of pressure in every role that I perform because it is a great honor to be able to be on stage and um, interpret these historic characters um, that have existed for the past many, many hundreds of years. And um, I always give the utmost respect to the composer, to the librettist, and um, the character themselves in bringing them to life. And um, yes, like at the Royal Opera House, they have their own history of never having had a male Carabino there. But when I'm looking at the role of Carabino, that is not the first thing that I think about. I'm thinking about Mm. what did Mozart want with this character? because I, I personally can't have a conversation with Mozart himself. So how can I do this in a way that it is respectful to his writing, his interpretation of the libretto? And the next level would be, how can I pay respect to the director and the conductor and rest of my colleagues um, in the cast? Um, so there are these things that would preoccupy me even before I can start thinking about, oh, I am the first this or, oh, historic performance of this. Um, yeah, I, I, I didn't really pay attention to that, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, were, were, you, were yeah. you quite surprised that, that somewhere like the, the, the Royal Opera House kind of, um, I suppose to put it bluntly, kind of hired you for this for this kind of role. They did something like having a male Caribbean because it, it does seem, as you said, kind of thinking about tradition, it's quite out of kilter with that kind mm-hmm. of, you know, tradition of things. Yeah, of course. And I am very grateful that they gave me this opportunity. And um, yeah, I had so much fun with it. And I was surprised that they 
would um, be willing to have a male Kirubino. Um, so yeah, I, I yeah, I was just surprised. But at the same time, I am always surprised <laughs> when I get like a new offer to do something um, like doing uh, M Butterfly that I will be doing next mm. season, which is a play that's being turned into an opera. And um, when I was approached to do this, it had always been my dream to play the character of Song Liling on Broadway as an actor, um, even before I knew what opera was. So um, yeah, every little casting choice, it has an element of surprise. And when it works out, then there's the element of responsibility and respect, like I said earlier. Um, one thing I'm always interested about, because I mean, you're, uh, you know, doing very well as a singer, you're performing in houses, you know, all around the world, lots of different places. When you're when you're in a different place, do you kind of have a real kind of sense of the the history of the the company or the house that you're working for, or are you very much kind of focused on the rehearsal room that you're in with the director and conduct? You know, how much are you, are you kind of thinking about your kind of wider surroundings, or how much you just kind of focused on you know that, that kind of team you're working with on each show? Well, like I said um, earlier, the hierarchy for my uh, things that occupy my attention is first the music itself, um, the opera itself, and then um, the creative team. And then perhaps after that, uh, I can start thinking about other things. But generally speaking, a period uh, of like a five, six week period for an opera, which is long, um, it's not long enough to really perfect anything. I feel like every opening night is always a work in progress. And um, the aspects like history of the theater, or um, if the opera had been premiered there uh, before, uh, or the opera that I'm doing right now, if it were first performed at this theater, things like that, it's it comes up in the conversations, but it's not something that I should focus on because it has nothing to do with how I would interpret the character. And my job as an uh, as a singing actor is to really do my job of bringing a character to life. And yeah, I I tend to um, how do I put this? I tend to kind of let myself be dumb in a way. <laughs> and it's like an aspect that you need for religion too. You know, you just need to have this blind faith. And yeah. I think when it comes to opera and theater in general, I have such like blind faith in the work, the uh, work itself that other things really um don't bother me or affect me. I think I would perform um, the same Kerubino I performed at the World Opera House at the smallest regional theater in the US if the opportunity comes. Now, obviously, you've I mentioned you've been at the, the Opera House, you've been at Glyndebourne, you're in Vienna now. You know, do, are you kind of feeling part of that kind of opera furniture? Do you kind of feel very, you know, <laughs> settled in this kind of jet set um, world that you're occupying? Well, I've always um, 
dreamed of um, flying around all the time because my father, he was a um, an engineer kind of in marketing. So he was always flying around and in Japan one day and Russia the next and in South America the next month. And yeah, I, I think because I had such high, because I had such mm, admiration for traveling around, I really love what I'm doing right now. It's really my dreams coming true. And um, I love meeting new people, finding new restaurants, <laughs> um, and learning new public transport system. I actually quite enjoy that. That is a and very perverse a... thing to... Um... Really? <laughs> but it's so fun, you know? <laughs> you just kind of learn to train system and you kind of feel like a local, but you also, you're, you will never be a local there there's this sense of oh you know I learned this and I know this better than some of the locals so I really belong here is it's fun <laughs> you're very candid in your social media um it, mm-hmm. not just you know lovely pictures of, of you on um on holiday recently which um yeah which I think we, we all saw but you know you're talking about things like you mentioned your dad there and kind of not knowing you know how we'd kind of react to your to your your marriage and whether you come to the wedding and you know things like that so you're very open yeah. on, on social media yes I is, am. That, is that openness an important part of your appeal as an artist do you think that you you're very open you're very kind of genuine well I don't try to be more of an open person on social media to with an ulterior motive it's just my way of expressing and connecting with people and it doesn't really have anything to do with my career. I, I think I would do the same things um, if I weren't performing and if I were not in the public's eyes. Um, yeah, but especially Instagram, um, I try to keep that as personal as possible and just do do whatever I want on there because mm. some people tell me, oh, you should focus more on opera. And some people tell me, oh, you should focus a bit more on this and that. I'm like, I don't care if I feel like knitting that day and take a beautiful <laughs> photo in uh, by the river in, uh, in the Donau Insta or something, then I will do that and just post it. And if there are some people who connect uh, to that and have some sort of reaction, great. If not, that's still great because I still have my output. I don't necessarily look for an input. Um, yeah, but Twitter and Facebook, I try to keep it, um, keep those two a bit more professional and work related. I mean, is, is that because Instagram for you, generally the people that look at that are maybe more connected to you personally or perhaps uh, kind of a younger demographic of people looking at, whereas Twitter and Facebook might be a bit more um of that kind of opera crowd or is it is it just how you kind of feel instagram as a platform works for you yeah i think i agree with uh what you just said and also um i got my instagram account very very early um because i was very active on youtube before i became a professional opera singer i used to make comedy and um parody videos on youtube and 
us YouTubers used um, Instagram and so many different platforms to really market ourselves back then. And for me, at that time, from that time, Instagram has always been just sharing snapshots of my everyday life more than anything else. And now Instagram has turned into a complete different monster <laughs> beast with sponsored posts and yeah. you can um, sell your products on there, uh, direct links and this and that. But I don't care about those things. I just want to share my life. And also, I, I love following other opera singers and other artists other people in general that I find fascinating and some people um, some opera singers uh, really use Instagram to market themselves as opera singers but some people you see a completely different side of them um, through Instagram and I find that fascinating so perhaps that's in the back of my mind that's what I want for myself as well kind of sticking on this this thing of kind of um the engagement with, with social media i mean do you ever kind of feel a bit of a divide between people like yourself or you know someone like Jakob Olinsky and, and that kind of older generation of singers um i, I came across the the other week Eston davis um mm-hmm. talking about Jakob Olinsky saying he's been he's been fortunate to engage so well with the world on social media and, and he was interested to see how that impact translates into the sobriety of the classical music world in, in the long run um, which seemed an interesting mm. quote to, to me. Do, do you kind of feel a bit of a divide between this kind of younger generation of, you know, both of you happen, happen to be counter tennis, but <laughs> very, um, <laughs> very open kind of fresh faces on social media and an older generation, that sobriety that kind of Eston Davis was, was talking about? Well, I think because we live in the age of reality television, where and reality television and influencers, um, where people or general public is interested in the private lives of people. Um, I guess what we do, uh, what my friend Jakob and I do on Instagram, kind of, we do subscribe to the current trend. But I don't know if, I, I can't speak for Jakob, of course, but for myself, that it's it's not intentional. It is just by chance that they're aligned. Um, but but you kind of feel very different to, you know, people like Eston Davis, or the, uh, you know, a, a different generation of uh, of opera singers. You kind of feel as though there is a. Yes, um, there's difference, but also um, you can see the social media of Dame Sarah Connolly or Carita Matilla. They do have very different um, Twitter accounts, but um, Dame Sarah really uses her platform to speak about her um, political causes, um, what she believes in. And um, uh, Ms. Matilla, she... (laughs) I, I love I mean, her Twitter. Her, her Twitter is hilarious. I mean, <laughs> why a selfie with nails and a glass of Chardonnay at 11 o'clock in the morning? And, you know, a selfie. I, it, it's fun. And But I would say they're different generational singers as well. So they're doing that too. Now, if, if people didn't, didn't know you before this summer, a lot of people will, will know um, a certain person called Kim Chulia Bartley. Um, yes 
for for those who don't, just just very briefly fill us in on on um, who Kim Chilia is. So Kim Chilia is the forgotten little sister of the diva Cecilia Bartoli, um, but she's Korean, so she has kimchi in her name, and um, she is that she is a lifelong understudy of her favorite divas, <laughs> but how she was born was actually, um, it dates back to my very first day of undergraduate when I had my very first singing lesson with my singing teacher, Teresa Roncaccio, and she asked me the questions, uh, type of questions that all the teachers ask their first year students, like, where do you see yourself in five years? What would you be singing in five years time? All these questions. And I said, I would love to sing Agitata Tatu Eventi by Cecilia Bartoli. I didn't even say it was by Vivaldi or because I had a Viva Vivaldi album with her beautiful red dress and I loved it. And um, she was like, okay, there are a few things that, that are wrong with that statement, but we'll see where that goes. And we didn't really talk about it. And on the very last recital hour of my undergraduate career, when um, different students would uh, perform in front of other students and faculty members, I thought it'd be a fun idea for me to do a drag performance of Cecilia Bartoli because I was dabbling in makeup and drag, as well as um, having made the switch from tenor to countertenor by this point. So everything just came together. I sang it, and my roommate recorded the video. I put it on my YouTube channel, and um, around the same time in America, Santa Fe Opera was doing Griselda, and some famous singers posted that video on their social media and it just kind of spread like wildfire. And now many people, well, I would say two in every three people that I meet in classical opera world say, actually, you're that guy, right? <laughs> Even two nights ago, I was at Don Giovanni um, at Tatan de Vin, uh, conducted by Antonini. And I was... Um, having drinks with him after the show and my colleague Julia Semensato, she introduced me as Kim Chilia Bartoli and <laughs> Antonini knew who I was because of that video. So yeah, it was a good marketing tool. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, going back to the idea of, of sobriety briefly, I mean, one of the reasons I think people love Kim Chilia is that, you know, opera sometimes is a little bit po-faced, you know, a, a little bit yeah. serious with itself. Do you, do you sure. think we need do we need more kimchilias, do you think? I personally would love more kimchilias, I think. Um, anytime you see, I don't know, there are so many legendary performances that I enjoy, like um, Greta Thunberg's mother, Melina Ehrmann, doing push-ups while um, singing Stane Lirkana from Elchina at Zurich Opera. I watch that video every two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, also, there was a video of Joyce DiDonato in the backstage of an opera house singing Beatles. Um, I, I love these kinds of videos, and like Jimmy Barton does a lot of these. Yeah. And 
Yeah, I, I think um, people, more and more people are beginning to see that opera singers are not just um, these serious musicians, scholars who have philosophical ways of looking at characters. No, we're just everyday people um, doing the thing that we love and we express ourselves in different ways. And I just happen to express myself uh, with my femininity perhaps or my comedic side and bring it together with opera, which is yeah, that's exactly why I love David McVicker's Julia Cesare so much, because mm. there's such a fun. fun aspect to it, but with integrity. You know, there's always, at the core, there is delivery of good singing, uh, drama, everything is there. And the fun entertainment part is just a sprinkle on top. And... That's what I aspire to do more and more as a singer. Very well said. Um, now, I, we couldn't have this chat without bringing up the kind of the big talking point in, in, in opera at the moment with, you know, kind of things progressing with the, the Domingo case. And you know, it, It's clear that this, his actions have, have not been uncommon in the world of opera. I mean, what's your experience been like? You know, you're someone who's, who's performed around the world. You know, do you think that the opera as, a, as an industry, as a workplace still has a, a long way to go um or has your experience been a very positive one of, of kind of the um yeah the, the, the opera world well i have had a personal experience with certain people in um power uh that could have that could have turned bad i guess yeah i i, I have had experiences with predatorial people in power and but I must say that is true uh, it's the same in every industry and every job field I feel like and it's not just exclusive to entertainment and um, arts I think it, it it's something that's been happening for many many decades in every field but the current climate, we, we're now ready to speak about it. And what's more important is not to necessarily dig up more dirt, but rather creating a safer space for everybody that anybody can um, feel safe enough to talk about things that are not going right and um, people in administration or people who have power can make changes happen i think that's more important yeah yeah and do you do you feel as though that's what you're saying um in in the the places that you're working i think a lot of what's happening is really focused in english-speaking parts of the world yeah and also the whole Me Too movement and all that, I think it's very American. And America, uh, as American, I think I can safely say that the US wants and um, 
craves the uh, a level of political correctness that might not fly in other parts of the world. I, I, everything has to be so PC in the U.S. these days. And um, I, because I haven't worked in the U.S. ever, actually, except having toured there with an English group, I can't really speak about the U.S. climate uh, from personal experience. But, but from what I hear from colleagues, um, many people are taking it very, very seriously and making changes. So it's good to see that happening um, from this side of the pond. Um, but in, in Europe, I don't think I have seen like a, a night and day kind of sudden switch, yeah. which has happened a lot in the US. And putting this aside, you feel very um, at home here in Europe, we've you know made a nice um, a nice impression on you whilst you've been whilst you've been over here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I spent the first eleven years of my life in South Korea, and the second eleven years of my life in the United States in Chicago, and I'm in the middle of my third eleven years uh, in <laughs> Europe. And really, for me, any place where I hang my hat is home. <laughs> And I, I just enjoy and love wherever I am because I love life. And um, I also love that with music, I can enrich my life in a way that many other um, people in other um, professional fields cannot. I, I'm living with this gorgeous, historic, and it's something that is entertainment, but at the same time, it's uh, philosophical and it's dramatic. And it, it just gives, the, the aspect of theatrics and opera really gives a wonderful um, push and pull kind of tension to everyday life that I really thrive on. And to be in Europe where opera was born and it is so embedded into many different cultures in Europe, I can really sense that. Um, and here in Vienna right now, it's everywhere you go, you have a street named, uh, all the streets are actually named after opera or classical music. It's actually harder to find a street that is not named after classical music. And being a classical musician, it feels really, really great. <laughs> I feel like Home, I belong. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the final question we ask everybody, uh, if there's there's one role that you've got your your eye on, whether it be countertenor, whether it be mezzo, uh, whatever it might be, uh, down the line, what would you what would you really love to do? Wow. You know, I I semi jokingly say this, but I'm actually very serious. I would love to play the page of Herodias in Salome, just so that I can say I've been in Salome. <laughs> because my other two favorite operas are um, Idomeneo by Mozart and L'Incoronazione di Popea mm -hmm. by Monteverdi. But those two I, I get to sing on a somewhat regular basis. I've done Idomeneo twice now, Popea I've done two productions, I'm doing two more in the next coming seasons. Um, but 
for me, Page of Herodias, this three-page little role, I I think I would be the happiest singer in the entire <laughs> cast, if not the country or the continent, if I get to sing this and just be on the same stage as, you know, these Strauss Wagnerian singers. And I'm just sure, I'm sure we can persuade somebody. I'm sure. That yeah, I would, it would just make me very, very happy. <laughs> you, don't, yeah. you don't fancy playing Salome? No, no. No, no too much. <laughs> I'm not really into chopping heads, so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure talking to you. All the best for your time in Vienna. Thank um, you so much, David. Not at all. Everything else you've got coming up. So thank you very much to Justin for joining me last month. Uh, now I know, Helen, you were a big fan of his Carabino at the Royal Opera House and indeed of Kimchilia. Yeah, I, lo I love the video. It was a lot of fun. So I would say if you've not seen seen it, you must YouTube it. Uh, a lot of fun. Um, and I just think, again, it's really good to get people who talk differently about opera, but clearly love it, but are just totally into opera and totally being themselves and not being somebody they think they need to be to be successful in opera. Yes, uh, that, that describes Justin very well. Thank you. <laughs> um, now, uh, we also had the, the sad news this month of the death of uh, the, the legendary uh, Jessie Norman. Um, born in 1945, she, she debuted at the Deutsche Oper Berlin in the late 60s, um, going on to specialise in the dramatic soprano repertoire. Um, however, she sang a range of roles over her career. Um, a fantastic quote from her when she was 23 years old. She was asked about her voice type and she said that pigeonholes are only comfortable for pigeons, um, which I think is a fantastic yeah. quote, and I think spoke a lot uh, of, of her as a, as a, as a person. Um, now, again, another announcement. Next month, we have an exclusive interview with the Canadian baritone Gerald Finlay, um, and I'm just going to play a clip from that interview where he talks about meeting uh, Jesse Norman. Um, this was actually recorded as part of the uh, sound check for the, for the interview, so it won't <laughs> be coming up next month. Um, but here's Gerald Finlay um, on Jesse Norman. It was very sad to hear of the death of Jessie Norman today. I saw her in the Cathedral of St. John the Divine last February. I was in New York doing Bluebeard, and she was, I, I'd gone to an organ recital at St. John the Divine Cathedral, and she was there in her wheelchair with an attendant, and apparently had become a, a, a regular attendee there. And so I went up and said, I, just have you know, Miss Norman, that I've been listening to you and Sam Raimi sing Bluebeard, you know, for the last three months. <laughs> she went, oh, did you enjoy it? I said, it was, I, 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 yes, your performance was amazing. She said, oh, you're very kind. She said, but it's a, that's a sad day to, um, to think that she's gone. So that was really lovely to listen to, wasn't it? It's, he's got such a lovely voice as well, and just even when he speaks. But anyway, lovely. so I will be checking into that podcast for sure. I was just going to say, uh, it happened to be, I was in the car um, the morning that the news broke about Jesse Norman, and it was, it was radio, I think it was um, Petrock's show in the morning, and he played September. And I'm um, not ashamed to admit, I was just in the car driving, minding my own business, and, and the tears were streaming down my face, and that genuine story, just such a moving, moving, moving voice. That's why we love what we do, because there's these people who can split us and do that to us when we're not even in an opera house, we're in a car, in a traffic jam, 
somewhere in Lancashire, and I heard that, and I was gone. And as we know, opera's all about singing. <laughs> it's all about it's all about the music. Um, so it's a, a, a sad day for opera, but you know, hearing just just now from uh, from Justin Kim as well, lots of exciting things uh, in opera's future. Uh, talking about uh, celebrating opera, this Friday is World Opera Day, um, an effort by companies and umbrella bodies across the world to shout about opera, with many different things going on to celebrate the day. Um, so look out on social media for hashtag World Opera Day and hashtag Love Opera. Um, I know a lot of companies are doing special events. Opera Vision have got a, a couple of um, new performances going up that day, which I'll, I'll talk about later. Um, so do uh, tune in for World Opera Day on the 25th of October. A few things to finish off this month. Uh, the first one coming from BBC Radio 4. Um, this uh, had a lot of um, excitement, uh, or maybe excitement isn't quite the right word, on social media. Twitter uh, storm, I think. A twi- a Twitter, Twitter storm. storm. We do like a good Twitter storm. Um, a twarm? A twarm. Oh. Oh, I'm liking that. I'm gonna gonna use that. Trademarks. Yeah. Um, so this is this is front row of the BBC Radio 4's uh, daily arts program. Um, they had an interview with Daniel Denise where they uh, spoke about kind of being introduced to opera and whatnot. The actual interview itself was was uh, fairly harmless, kind of fluff. Um, but what really caused a uh, caused a twarm was the um, <laughs> the tweet that went along to advertise it. This is coming from Radio 4 as well. Um, as they say on the Twitter bio, the home of intelligent speech, journalism, comedy and drama. Um, the tweet said, which way should I face? Should I get up there and join in? Are monocles obligatory? How to watch an opera with one of its biggest stars, Danielle Denise. Um, which just for me, I mean, we talk all the time about trying to get opera to the to the wider audience, mm. remove some of these stupid things. And here is Radio 4, who speaks to the home of intelligent speech, speaks to an audience of that kind of core audience you think would be interested in opera and these are the sort of things they're putting out and i would say you know without much of a hint of sarcasm about it the other thing is that again we've spoken before that we're in this sort of opera bubble where we just sort of think that even if you haven't been to the opera you sort of know Mm. what it's about and what to expect but maybe we're just so closeted (laughs) that we we forget that a lot of people still have these sort of preconceptions i don't know if that's true well yeah there seems to be well i think there definitely is a, a, a kind of this an idea, a preconception in in society in general, in this country, in kind of, or in popular culture, that opera is a thing that is not enjoyable. It's it's a thing that is boring. It's a thing that is unpleasant to listen to. That seems to be the kind of pervading stereotype about opera. And uh, yes, I I used to be kind of well, before I. Before I got into opera, when I was a teenager, I was kind of taken in by this stereotype as well. I I believed that opera was boring, and it was you know just a load of warbling is the is the thing that people say, isn't it? Um, but the first time I actually went to an opera, I had a great time and I really enjoyed it. And ever since then, I've loved it as an art form. And that is a story that I hear repeated over and over again. I, I remember I remember seeing Opera North share a letter that they'd received once from um, somebody who'd brought his daughters to see their production of Macbeth because they were studying Macbeth, the yeah, play, yeah. for their GCSEs. And they didn't realise when they booked the tickets that it was the opera oh, Macbeth. Yeah. So they said, we got the shock of our lives <laughs> when the orchestra started playing and then all the actors were singing. But they finished <laughs> off saying, 
we had the most amazing time and we're going to book tickets for the whole season. And I just, and that happens so often. You know, okay, there are going to be some people who don't like opera. Mm. Just like, you know, not everybody can like everything. But so often people believe that opera is not for them because they've been told that that is the case by society, by this stereotype. But actually, when they just give it a try, they have a good time. They enjoy it. So, yeah, I, th I think this tweet, although it seems inconsequential, it does feed into that sort of narrative about sort of otherness and weirdness. I, I think the, the thing for me is I could understand it if this tweet came from... Radio I'm 1. Gonna something yeah, I'm going to say something really bad, <laughs> bad here about who it might come from. But... Uh, you know, a, a radio station that, let's face it, is for sort of nice middle class people. I think that was what really struck me about it. Or, or maybe, if... But maybe they were trying to do the reverse of showing how paradoxically down and cool they were. So they were almost playing against type, but one of those horrible misfires yeah. where they're like, well, wish I'd press delete. <laughs> when I saw the tweet, and my first thought was, oh, these are these are examples of questions that people have asked about opera yeah. that, that seem silly but show how little people know about it and that's why it's kind of that seen said, as though, a closed door. But yeah. if that had yeah. been the case, it would have been good, it would have been fine, but because they were just plucked out of thin air, they weren't real examples of real questions, I think. So if yeah. in the interview you'd have been some poor person saying, oh, you know, do you need your monocle? Yeah. But you're right, then it, what, nobody actually asks yeah. those that, questions. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That's why it's feeding into a stereotype, yeah. because it isn't real. You could find real examples of, you know, silly questions that people might ask about opera because they wouldn't know the answers to them. But because these were made up, they're just perpetuating... A negative stereotype, I think. Well, I, think I well, I was actually went to watch um, Opera North this Saturday, and um, it's funny because it just came out. I was chatting with my friend, and actually, my friend had actually made a bit of an effort and kind of got. And I was just totally just just like jeans, very you know, pretty. Not, I wouldn't say scruffy, but was, I was not at all in ceremony. Um, and I actually love the fact I just go to opera, and I'm normal normal about it but, it but on the other hand it's quite nice I guess for people to dress up but then I think we're looking at a greater thing there was a an article in a paper that weekend about you know the the edge of the suit is over you know there's a lot of things Crying that change I know so, <laughs> sorry Chris um but just coming back to the opera you were just talking we've all had these um experiences that have brought us in that said though I I think we would both be before we came into a opera musicians um as yes, it were so I, my, my background is like a an orchestral player um but i love to tell my story about getting into opera was basically i wanted to give it a go and channel four had done a load of uh they were screening a lot of operas at that time and me and a friend of mine we were in sixth form we used to sit and we watched all the best operas with a pint of bodies at, that, at the hand, and also I love to about opera part of the reason i loved in this podcast is that it's great to have people with an accent like mine from Lancashire, from the north, David, you know, we're all, you know, we're not what we, you would expect people to sound like in opera. And I think that's I'll, really I'll important as well. <laughs> With <laughs> my sorry accent. It's all right. I oh, know. You're okay. Oh, yeah. But I think it's really important um, yeah. to have these kind of conversations. But it, it didn't help. And it was a shame because the, you, you're right, the, the interview didn't match yeah. the tweet. So actually... On a lot of levels, there was probably quite a lot of trouble about that. Mm. It's just attention grabbing. I would say one thing: 
it was it was interesting what uh, Danielle said. She was talking about, you know, what should I do before I go to the opera? And she kind of said, oh, I always read in a synopsis. And I was just going to, I'm just going to ask, you know, if, it, if you're going to an opera you don't know, so I'm taking David's jobs here, I'm asking the questions. Do you read a synopsis? So my thing is, so I'm going to see something I've never seen before and usually I have some background maybe, but maybe not a lot. I love just going and going, right, knowing nothing and experience it and kind of being in the moment. I'm just curious about what other people do because yeah. she was saying go and read about it, but I actually think sometimes something about being in it and just like yeah. letting it all hit you. I, I'm notoriously bad at following oh. plots, storylines. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I really, particularly in theatre, I don't know, not just opera, but all theatre, I don't know why, but I just really <laughs> struggle to follow storylines. So I... I don't tend to read up before going, right. but I will go and I'll buy a program and I'll read the synopsis of each act. Right, okay, act. you will, right. Um, usually. And right. usually if I don't do that, I come out and I turn to my wife and I say, so who was that? What was that person doing? I didn't understand and she has to explain right. to me. I don't tend to, it's because I'm stubborn. And then in the interval, I will inevitably have to have a look at Or is that because yeah. you're from Yorkshire and begrudge paying for a programme? <laughs> I, I have the kind of the thing that you said there, of I like the idea of going and just seeing the story. Now, I'll get most of it, but there will sometimes be, you know, because you just, you missed, you missed that or you were looking, you know, you, there'll be something that you've missed. I, look, I don't think you should have to go to the to the opera and read up um, no. about it beforehand, no. But also, at the same time, I don't like the idea of telling people to prep before they go, because that sounds horrible. But actually, it's not the worst idea just to go on no, Wikipedia and, and see yeah. what the story is. But, well, Wikipedia plot synopsis of, uh, are yeah. really dry. Well, yeah, well, yeah, where, not, wherever yeah. you might, you know. Well, that's why get, I, I like to read the programme, because the programme program is written good. for the production that you're watching. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, it, and so it, it kind of is tailored for your experience. Um, but I think, uh, although I agree with you that it, you know, it should speak for itself, you know, opera is a very stylized art form. And if you were, would you say the same thing, for example, about ballet? If you're going to watch a ballet that you don't know the story of. You absolutely must read the synopsis. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Because it's there are, stylized. There are, people, there are people telling you what the story is. <laughs> yes, but <laughs> it's. You know, if we compare it to musical theatre, particularly modern musical theatre, the kind of the the text setting in musical theatre is so naturalistic most of the time compared to opera where, again, it's much more about the artistry of the voice and almost it's an athleticism thing at, at times. The text is can naturally be harder to kind of to communicate because of that fact and so I think it but I would say that's the beauty of opera I'm just thinking about the project we did I did for Northern Opera where we combined the Shakespeare that's what I love about mm. the opera and the music is sometimes it doesn't matter too much that you might admit because you get the sense mm. from the overall yeah. carrying you through the moment thing and I quite like being able to almost shut my brain off sometimes and just experience. So it's an interesting thing. I think it's interesting, but this is the thing. Isn't this nice to have the discussion about actually it's fine to go to an opera and however you get into it is mm, fine. Yeah. Whatever you wear, you know, just go and experience it and let's move away from rules. I mean, yeah. there is an actually a really 
really good guide to opera that the RNCN do at the bottom. And that that's what I thought this uh, this Radio 4 thing was going to be about, like, uh, let's let's debunk the myths. Yeah, and yeah. they didn't debunk any of the myths, really, mm. did they? They just kind of put the tweet out. And yeah. this is quite good because it kind of, in a nice way, tells people just get there, but it actually does address should I clap, yeah, you know, yeah. all the things that people... And people do worry. When people come after and watch my mm. operas, they're kind of like, oh, do do I need to dress up? No. Um, what about... And, I, and I'm like, you know, just come and enjoy it. But there is that fear. Yeah, I, particularly the applause thing. I Again, I remember when, when I was a teenager first getting into classical music, I, I had huge hang-ups about when was the correct time to applaud. <laughs> and I would, I remember sometimes, you know, I would stubbornly applaud because I thought that that was good, I'm going to applaud It deserves applause, yeah. yeah. And I would be the only person applauding. And I, I, you know, I cringe looking back at that. But maybe you shouldn't, though. Well, no, I, I agree because I think... I actually find it quite um, presumptuous when 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 people when performers say there should not be applause at this time in between these movements there should not be applause because I I feel like well uh, shouldn't I, it be down to the audience to, 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 to express I totally agree yeah their response to the performance however they want to express it and okay it's true if you've just finished you know um, I don't know. The, the slow movement of a symphony, you know, that that, that is not usually a, something that calls for applause as it finishes. But if you've just finished, you know, the first movement of a, of a traditional yeah, kind total. of sonata form yeah. uh, symphony, that usually, you know, in like You've a generated all that, that momentum and exactly, excitement yeah. and you want to release it. And, and the, you're sat... I, I've, like you, I've been in an audience in recent times where there's this... Uh, not opera, but it's mm. still legitimate. It's mm. classical music, David. And uh, it was fantastic symphony. First movement. Literally, you wanted to stand up and go, yay! Yeah. And literally, silence. I was I was playing in a production of Sister Act uh, <laughs> last year. Not opera, but um, I remember that <laughs> during the Act One finale on one evening... There was a particular character. There's a character in Sister Act who, um, she's very quiet. Mm. That's her kind of yeah, character trait. Very quiet, yeah. very shy. <laughs> That's her character. Well, it is. It is. And and um, um, oh, I've forgotten the name of the main character. The character played by Dolores. Is it? Dolores. Thank you. Um, brings her out of her shell. And in the musical, in the Act One finale, she has a sudden outburst. In she does a big solo all yeah, of a sudden. Yeah. And the the woman playing uh, this character in this production I was playing in was a teacher. And on the Saturday matinee, all her students came to watch. And when she burst out with her solo in the Act One finale, all of a sudden there was a standing ovation and cheers from the audience. And it was a genuine yeah. response of just pure excitement, from mostly from her students. But it, it, it filled the whole room. And I was playing, and I honestly, I had tears in my eyes from how exciting it was to be playing music and to have that response from yeah. the audience. Such a genuine, you know a genuine response to, to something you're doing in mm. a performance. And so I... I yes, yeah. yeah, so if, if we stop that, yes. or the culture We're is stopping something. that, we are losing, definitely, yeah. And on the subject of text, <laughs> I'm, going to come, I'm going to come back to this because as a, as a, a professional surtitle operator, I'm a big advocate of surtitles. And sometimes people say, oh, the surtitles are distracting. And I say to them, well, just don't look at them. Mm. If you know the opera, you don't need them. I've been to productions of operas that I know inside out. I just don't look at the surtitles. There are people there yeah. that do need them and they 
are really helpful to those people. So yeah, I just, just want to put away. that in yeah. as a little yes. bit of ad- advocacy. If there's anybody <laughs> listening who occasionally likes to criticise surtitles for being distracting, some people need them. Oh, absolutely, I always need them. Um, <laughs> and actually, that, that's interesting you mentioned that, Chris. I had a, a text from Emma Emma Black, who um, has oh, been on yes. the pod yeah. a couple of times, and she said, um, mentioning about that the E&O were doing some non-surtitled performances this oh, season. Right. Um, and that Ooh. unfortunately she'd she'd booked onto uh, the the for the glass Orpheus without um, surtitles, and she she didn't mean to do that, and she's rather regretting <laughs> the, the the choice. I mean, I, I find it very difficult to follow along with, with without them. Um, just to uh, finish up on on this, which has turned into a very interesting but slightly lengthier discussion <laughs> yes. than I was anticipating. Um, it, it goes back to this and what we've been speaking about a bit a bit bit today. This. Um, you know, kind of reaction between the 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 opera opera audiences and getting new people involved, and and the uh, reactions to getting new new people involved. A review by Rupert Christensen to um the the, the Burt Whistle that's just opened, and he has he has since apologised for this turn of phrase, but he ended his review by saying, um, for an average audience of ordinary folk, the Mask of Orpheus is a physical and mental ordeal, um, and whether he's apologised or not, there is I keep coming back to it. There's something in there about this turn of phrase, an average audience of ordinary folk that opera isn't maybe suited to mm. average yeah. people ordinary people um mm. and that maybe we should keep it to the monocled yeah um classes but anyway i'm not gonna well let's mm. let's not dig into let's not reignite let's yeah. not dig into that um tv film and radio roundup for the coming month uh highlights in cinema the metropolitan opera's madame butterfly and the royal opera's don pasquale uh radio highlights lots on radio three at the moment um a couple of things i've picked out um william alderwin's miss julie which received some great reviews a concert performance of that a couple of weeks ago do make sure to listen to that a real rarity there um, Agrippina from the Royal Opera House with Joyce DiDonato, um, and a real Janacek rarity on Radio 3 coming up, his opera Fate, uh, which I must say I've never heard of before, don't know anything about. Um, but again, Radio 3, especially their Thursday matinees, is a really good opportunity to hear some kind of uh, mm. slightly weird and wonderful repertoire. Um, online, I've mentioned it before uh, today, operavision.eu, um, a fantastic European Union-funded project um, celebrating opera, free performances from opera companies across Europe on there. Um, it's got a number of new releases online at the moment. I mentioned about this um, performance from Hungarian Opera, this right. Mozart mashup, but there's some fantastic things on there. Make sure to, to check out, again, a couple of highlights on there at the moment. Um, the Basserids, Henzer's Opera from the Commercial Opera Berlin, um, mentioned Agrippina, and um, the Grange Festival's production, and Anthropocene from Scottish Opera is still on there as well. Yeah. To celebrate World Opera Day, they've got four new releases, um, and because it's World Opera Day, um, they're stretching their remit away from Europe. So from Friday, you can watch productions of the Barbara Seville from Chile, uh, and a production of Carmen from Beijing. Um, oh, so really? a real celebration, and I think it's great just to be kind of reminded that, you know, opera takes place around around the world. It's still the same repertoire, um, but I think to have this opportunity to see what does it what does a Carmen well, yeah. look like in Beijing, what does a Barbara Seville look like in Santiago. Um, just a fantastic opportunity. Well, Carmen's so. my next one on my list, so um, that'd be so useful to see. Absolutely, you, you research. Yeah. Um, and before we get on to everyone's highlight, the opera quiz, um, our hidden oh. gem <laughs> opera for this month. Um, and I've, I've chosen this month um, the winner of the Gramophone uh, Opera Recording Award, um, which is Halleby's opera La Reine de Sheep, or The Queen of Cyprus. Now, this recording, I say, won the Gramophone 
Award uh, for this year, um, conducted by Hervé Niquet uh, with the Parish Chamber Orchestra. Uh, so La Reine de Chie by uh, Halavi, um, the composer was born 1799, uh, most famous for his opera um, The Jew, which uh, occasionally gets a performance. Um, this particular piece, uh, The Queen of Cyprus, was first performed at the Paris Opera in 1841, and it comes in five acts with a ballet, of course. Um, it's a tale of thwarted love and a battle between the courts of Venice and Cyprus, um, it's a slow but at the same time sort of rip-roaring affair. You know, if you condensed it to an hour, it would be quite the wonderful sort of... Uh, but it takes it's about four hours long. <laughs> um, with, very, with very kind of pretty early romantic uh, uh, music. Um, Wagner was said to be a fan of the opera. Um, however, not everyone was so enthralled. Uh, in a letter, the novelist George Sand to the painter Eugène Delacroix said, You did well, old friend, not to go to the opera. It was boring to death in spite of the magnificence and pomp of the spectacle... I trust your truffles gave you more inspiration <laughs> than La Reine de Sheep gave to Mr. Halevi. Um, so George Sand's not a fan, um, but the winner of this year's Gramphone Opera um, recording. Uh, it's, a really, it's a really lovely piece, uh, La Reine de Sheep by Halevi. Um, so here is an extract from that Gramophone Opera Award winning recording. And so to conclude, it is time for the Opera Quiz. Uh, now, we've tried a few different formats of the quiz over the last few months. We're going to go back to a format you're familiar with, Helen. It's okay. um, the same that we did with you and Emma a few months right. ago. So I'm going to read out the cast of an opera. Oh, starting no. with, I did horrendously badly at starting this, Starting with David. the smallest character going oh. up. Um, if you think you know the opera, you need to buzz in or shout out. Um, you only get one guess per round, however. Okay. I was looking forward to this, but I'm extremely <laughs> nervous. Well, I know. We, uh, if it's any consolation, this is the bit last time that Emma and I were like, oh, we're really w nervous. <laughs> it's the bit I was kind of hoping that David would have forgotten. We you all need, love the quiz. Don't forget David. the quiz. You need a theme tune, though. There has to be a theme tune. Yeah, that's da, a good da, point. Da, 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 yeah. Quiz, uh, yeah, for next time. <laughs> We're just talking to try and hope that it'll go away. But yeah, I, it's can not see, going I can see what you're doing. <laughs> it's not going away. It's on my iPad. Um, so we've got five uh, five operas. First to three wins. So oh, I say, if you buzz oh in, gosh. if you buzz in and you get it wrong, that's you done. My heart's going. <laughs> okay, so we're going to start off with the first opera. Okay, smallest character going up. Nireno. Curio. Achilla. Sesto. Oh, but I can't remember the opera. I'm going to keep going? Yep. Yeah. Cornelia. Ptolemaio. Yeah, it's it... Cesare, isn't it? Yes. Julius Caesar. Yeah. Have you seen that? I have seen it. Yeah. seen it a few times. The Glyndebourne production is absolutely is fabulous. Right. I haven't been to the, uh, I haven't, I haven't uh, seen the opera not production yet. Are you going season. to that? I, so that's why I didn't get it immediately. Just to just to put that out there, right. I have seen it. It's very good. Is it right? It's very shiny. Shiny. It's oh, it's a great production. Right. Yeah. Round two. One else, Chris. <clears throat> a page. A court usher. Marillo. Count Monteroni. Matteo Borsa. Count Ciprano. The Countess Ciprano. Giovanna. <laughs> Madalena. Uh. uh 
Oh, it, no, it can't be that. It's not Rigoletto, no. It is Rigoletto. Ah. Oh, it is! Spada for Chile, the Duke of Mantua, Gilda, Rigoletto. Madalena. Yeah, at least I've got one. <laughs> I wasn't Phew. expecting anyone to get it from a court usher. No, so. I know. Uh, what was that? There was uh, Amarillo? Is this the way to Amarillo? <laughs> <laughs> the, the lost version of Amarillo. Redone by Peter Kay. 1-1. One, one. Next up. Ooh. A notary. The police sergeant. Ambrogio. Fiorello. Oh, uh, no. I was going to say something stupid then. But <laughs> no, it's not. Berta. Basilio. Oh, no. I keep wanting to say Mozart, but it's not. I'm just going for the Basilio because I'm thinking of... Figaro. Oh, I am. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. It's the Barber of Seville. Yeah. Go on to Chris. Oh, I should have opened my mouth. Cautious. I should have opened my mouth. That was very I can't cautious. believe we both waited that long before answering that one. Well, it's, because, it's the tension. It's it the is, pressure. Yeah. Now, the... you know, these quizzes where they're on TV, you think, God, why didn't I get that? You know, yeah. I'm, I've, I'm always feeling a lot kinder when I've mm. done this because you do feel that tension, don't mm. you? Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely appalling under pressure. <laughs> Two on to Chris. Okay. So if Chris gets this, he's won. Oh. I might let him get it, then the pain will be up. No. <laughs> Voglinda. Oh, oh uh, Wagner. Uh, first one, isn't it? Uh, is it... Is uh, it Hummel, well, yeah, Death Rheingold. Yeah. Or it could be uh, Go to Demering. Well, someone's going to have to make a guess. Rheingold. Well, it, it could be either of those, because... It comes... But it's, with the comfort... Yeah, but you're right. They're, they're only in Rheingold and Go to Demering, aren't they? Yeah. Who's making a guess? What? You've gone for I'm... Das Rheingold, so you can... Uh, it's not Das Rheingold. We're oh! going to continue, Chris. Oh, well, it we might be... as well continue then, just to make sure I've got the Belgunder. right one. Yeah. Floss Hilda. Floss Hilda. Oh, it's going to be... Alberich. Alberich. Valtrauter. Hagen. Gutruna. Gunther. It mu- Hilda, it's Götterdämmerung. Siegfried. Yeah. It is Götterdämmerung. And that is why I put it in there, because I was expecting someone to launch in with Das Rheingold. So, thanks. <laughs> Uh, so well done, Chris. Well is the done, winner. Chris. That Three too points painful. to one. Uh, congratulations. Oh, well, thank you for giving Commiserations, Helen. Next I, time you're on, we'll do a different quiz. Yeah, it keeps picking this quiz. And I said at the last one, obviously, being a conductor, I need to pay more attention to the minor characters. <laughs> well, that's, that's the reason why I do it, is to make you pay <laughs> to attention. To make me we, better. Yeah. You know, you just, you know the names of the cast, don't you? I, to be honest, I... Character names. Exactly, you know, exactly. Because hard. we're so lovely and kind with the people we work yeah. with. As a director, it's never... wonderful because you can... If you can't remember the cast member's name, you can always use their character's name and uh, and vice versa. Yeah, um, true. So yeah. That, that's uh, my excuse. Yeah, as a as a conductor, you also have an orchestra to uh, to deal with and it can be a bit awkward if you say, um, second horn. <laughs> so yeah. you, have to, <laughs> you have to learn the names. Yeah, you know, I'm a big fan of name badges. Nothing, nothing <laughs> yeah. wrong with yeah. a name badge. Um, so well done, Chris. Uh, yeah. Congratulations, for Chris. Well you. done. Thank you for giving me I a I feel slightly for robbed this. for that last one, though, but well. I'm not going to be bitter about it. Well. <laughs> Got to choose the moment to buzz in. Um, so thank you very much to, to Helen and Chris. Um, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Uh, I say next month we'll be back with an exclusive interview with Gerald Finley. You do not want to miss that. Make sure to check out World Opera Day this Friday. Thank you, Helen. Pleasure. Always lovely to be in Yorkshire, even though I'm a true Lancashire lass. I actually like it here. We will welcome you back anytime. Thank you, Chris. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. And we will see you next month. Goodbye. Am I still all right? Yeah. Good, we're recording. Excellent. So usual rules apply. Right. I edit it later, so you say something weird, you say something wrong.
Controversial. We do it again. You swear loudly. I have to take it out. That's the rule. I'm just going to get some tissues out. Just like risk I might sneeze. That's, that's fine. That will be edited. <laughs> Lined up in a row. Three sneezes. This is the stuff. This is the the stuff we need that goes in at the end. You know. Is it? Yeah. The casual chat. The casual, <laughs> random chat. Uh, right. If we're all ready, I'll get going. <clears throat>